Hello, and welcome to the Outlier Podcast, the podcast for everyone who's interested in building better homes. My name is Sandra, and I am hosting this podcast with Anthony, the founder and lead designer at Outlier Studio, who is passionate about creating beautiful and high-performing homes. Together, we sit down once a month to chat with industry experts and to answer your questions about high-performance homes. We want to educate Australians about the possibilities of energy-efficient design and to change the way we build houses today. We hope you join us on that journey. We have talked about waste management on this podcast before, and today we want to take it a step further and chat about creating a circular economy. For that, we have Scott Bryant on the podcast, who is a circular economy coordinator for the city of Greater Bendigo. Scott has been an amazing resource for the creation of our own waste management plan, and he has extensive experience working in this field in both Australia and overseas. We start off our conversation with explaining what a circular economy actually is and share some insights about what individuals and business owners can do to help. We also have some great examples for innovative businesses working in this field, as well as some exciting insights into what Bendigo is doing to stop wasting our waste. Thanks for taking the time to be on this episode with us today, Scott. We really appreciate it. Um, can you maybe tell our listeners a little bit about um, yourself? What it is it that you do? Uh, what's your background? And maybe also the connection of how we came to know each other. Sounds good. Yeah, happy to. Um, so just a quick thanks to you both. Thanks, Sandra and Anthony, for inviting me on. Yeah, always happy to chat circular economy and, and materials. So it's um, great that this is getting some, some airtime in, in Bendigo. The more the, the more the merrier. So I guess um, from my side of things, so I'm, I guess, a mechanical engineer by background, or that's original training, and I, uh, I fled the country about 10 years ago because uh, in Queensland, where I, I grew up and, and trained, um, there wasn't too much to do in the sustainability space at the time unless you uh, were in the know, and, and I wasn't. So I, uh, I found myself in Europe for the last 10 years, initially working on um, and then doing some further studies in uh, renewable energy and I guess both on our technical side of things as well as sort of policy and, and strategy and, and found myself um, in Scotland, of all places, working uh, with the Scottish government over there at Zero Waste Scotland where they had a, I guess, a symbiotic alignment between their renewable energy transition and sort of materials waste and what they started to call five years ago um, the circular economy and so i guess that's a, that's a bit about me and uh, i'm sure we'll get get into how i ended up in the sunny bendigo but um i had the uh, had the pleasure of chatting with anthony and the team uh, um, last year they were looking for some guidance around i guess what we traditionally tend to call waste or end-of-life materials um, just with regards to how they're looking to improve what they're doing as part of their um, innovative design and, and build side of things so that's i guess how how the stars aligned for this conversation today yeah that's right and we have to give another shout out to um, team member evanglia who kind of kick-started all of this. Um, if you've listened to our episode about waste management um, with a Bendigo-based company called Tiger Bin Hire, it's, we already mentioned that Evangler kind of started this journey for us. And yeah, we haven't stopped since then. We've continued, which is kind of the reason for our conversation today. Um, you've already mentioned you're back in, in Bendigo. So how did that happen? Did you, did you get sick of the rain in Scotland? <laughs> Ah, oh, one might think so, but it was, I guess, totally uh, total fluke, if you will. Um, I think I've, I'm, I'm officially Bendigo's, uh, 
city of Greater Bendigo's first um, first international hire, even though I'm technically um, Australian in terms of uh, it was just a last minute uh, saw online uh, an opportunity for what they'd uh, a new position that they'd created called a circle economy coordinator at the city, which was anything from fixing um, what what do we do when the landfills close because human nature we saw this 10 years coming out and you know three years beforehand everyone goes oh no we still haven't figured out what we're doing um and to be honest it was the first um circuit economy role i guess <clears throat> that i'd seen in in australia and so it was almost been 10 years it'd be uh, it was a good opportunity to, to come back and very serendipitously just happened to be just as a or just before a um, global pandemic kicked off so it wasn't because of the pandemic but I had literally made it back into the country with two weeks to spare yeah there you go good timing um you've mentioned that there's not that much um around in terms of circular economy and jobs in that field or anything even at the time in in Australia um how, can you explain maybe a little bit of what that buzzword circular economy actually means what is it that you're looking at in your role sure thing and i guess uh, one caveat i would say is if you could ask 12 different people in a room and they would give you 12 different answers so probably be a lot of similarities but it is i would say still a fairly contentious word in terms of it's been around for you know a good decade or more and and certainly 50 years if you if you look at where where it all started in terms of anything from you know in, industrial symbiosis to people might be familiar with cradle to cradle um, more in terms of thinking like full full life cycle but in a nutshell for me circular economy is a thinking about the full life cycle of what we're doing so it's not doesn't start with when we buy something and end with when we need to get rid of it but you know, what is the what is the impact of, of everything we're doing in terms of from when we're thinking about what goes into designing, say in this case a building, I appreciate we're talking construction today and design, through to, well, at the end of life when we no longer need it, it has to go somewhere, it doesn't just go away, so what do we do with it? And I guess the lens that everyone's starting to put over it now is, I guess, the, the climate crisis issue and greenhouse gas emissions, so starting to look at the impact of a product, or in this case, the impact of a building, isn't just about how efficient it operates when we've built it in terms of how much uh, or how little energy we can use, how much renewables we can use, but what's all the energy and the, the water and the resources that went into building it in the first place? And what does that look like, I guess, across the life cycle of a building? How do you how do you optimise that? We, we talk about the, the, the obvious things for us being in the design and construction industry, it's um, waste and materials, etc. But I think it, like looking at the bigger picture here, we can think about um, the livability of towns and cities and just the overall impact that this has beyond the scope of just that. Um, and I know Bendigo had the One Planet Living, or they do, sorry, have that um, guideline which they try to abide by. And through some of our tendering processes previously, it's always something that we respond to. Has it? Have you found that that ties in with that as well? or? Uh, it, it absolutely does, Anthony. I guess on your on your point, just before jumping onto the I guess the one planet guidelines, um, I guess that's that's another principle, if you will, on what people are or how people are looking through a circular economy lens. Is it's not just about how we just design and use materials, but is there a way to through our actions to actually I guess regenerate what we're doing, be that you know social contracts in our communities through to actual areas where we're you know, maybe using resources at the moment. Is there a way that our use of those resources actually makes that area nicer in terms, I guess, management of 
agriculture and um, you know, Woodstocks is probably a really good example there and particularly pertinent given everyone's uh, jumping onto the sustainable uh, timber um, and engineered timber products um, bandwagon. So exciting times there. But with, with regards to Bendigo, I guess the circular economy and how that ties in with our one planet living principles. And I guess that started to transition more into, I guess, the more common parlance of net zero targets. Um, so for the city, that's net zero as a, I guess, as an organization by 2030 and looking at how we work with the community to try and get there by 2036, which is no small task. Um, but I guess the overlap there is probably a, a mix of you have your, what most people tend to talk about when they talk about materials is, is the waste. So the emissions from actually just putting things in landfill, um, which is can, can be quite substantial um, in terms of methane that's produced when you put organic products in, in a hole. But it also, I guess, as a much larger portion of potential emissions and what we don't tend to talk about, we're starting to talk about more both in Australia and globally, but it's, it's the really... Uh, complicated and messy part is what we tend to call scope three emissions or embodied carbon and what that is and um, apologies to uh, your listeners if they're, they're well and truly clued up on this but that's effectively all the emissions that go into actually that you're not directly responsible for say as an individual or as a business but have gone into the creation of the, the products you buy to, to use and you know that would be anything that you use as a, a building product through to I guess the services that you might be using so the fact that you're using that service or you're consuming that product has some inherent um, emissions to it. And you know, countries like Australia and, and England, or England um, and the broader Great uh, UK and Great Britain um, have been, I guess, over the last 30 years, a lot of that we don't even produce in Australia anymore. And so those emissions, our scope three emissions, we've actually exported to the likes of China because they're doing a lot of them, our manufacturing for us. So ironically, it looks like we're reducing our emissions or stabilizing them, but we've just ex exported the problem. So that's a long-winded way of saying we've tried to in build into our climate change strategy and our, I guess, the evolution of our One Planet principles to looking at how do we reduce those emissions and starting to look at, well, the circular economy is a means of reducing those scope three emissions and starting to, I guess, account for and start to tackle the really complex bit of it. it's not just about getting solar panels on our roofs and getting energy efficiency it's now actually about i guess material efficiency now the one planet living principles they are certainly one step into the direction of pre like presenting solutions to these problems um is there something else something clearly that you can maybe share with us that the specifically obviously the bendigo council is doing to to help to achieve these goals yeah, so I guess um, I'd, I'd almost offer offer two, one for, for Bendigo and one that's, I guess, the global yardstick, if you will, for um, impact in this um, space. On, on the global level, you almost, um, any any life cycle analysis experts listening will get really annoyed because it's over far too uh, much of a simplification, but think um, carbon dioxide equivalent emissions. So measuring emissions is almost the yardstick today of are we are we improving things or are we doing worse? Obviously, that's overly simplifying things in terms of you could reduce carbon and at the same time, you could completely ruin a, a community or something like that. And that's obviously not a good outcome. But as a bit of a yardstick measure emissions and reducing it through how, what sort of materials you use or products you buy uh, or how they're comparatively better or, or worse is, is, I guess, a a good global yardstick and they combine that with what they um the consult a consultancy in the netherlands called circle economy 
has started reporting on the global circularity um, of our material chain. So how circular is the globe? And they publish a report called the Circularity Gap Report, which I believe as for 2020, the year 2022, published in 2023 just recently, were only 7.2% circular, which means of all the materials that we use globally, only 7.2% of them are coming from a recycled or reused source, if you will. So everything else is coming either out of the ground or being uh, being grown and having to be harvested. Um, so we've clearly got a long way to go. From a, from a Bendigo perspective, I guess in terms of implementation, it's it's been a long, long journey for a, or a slow process, much slower than I'd like. Um, the joys of uh, a thousand person organization and trying to implement uh, change in uh, you know, when you're trying to deal with a lot of different uh, people and teams. But we've had some reasonable success with what we've called our circular economy and, and zero waste policy, which in a nutshell is a, a, procure, a design and procurement policy sort of saying recycle first. How do we how do we get recycled content, reused products into all of the projects that we're doing, given that we use a lot of materials each year to um, you know, anything from building roads and footpaths through to, you know, building extensions to art galleries and these sort of things. So given that we spend quite a bit of money each year, I believe about $120 million a year in terms of delivering projects and services to the region, that's a lot of, that's a lot of money that can be spent intelligently to try and not only do the least harm in terms of pick what products and, and materials do the least harm, but also starting to think about how we can actually use those dollars intelligently to start doing that. Uh, I guess not just uh, environmentally re regenerating areas by, by selecting the right partnerships with different suppliers, but also looking at, I guess, what councils are probably historically more focused on how do you use that spend to regenerate communities and, and use it in, in a social sense as well. So it's trying to trying to bring that all together. No easy feat. That's. Uh... <laughs> I would love to put myself out of a job, Anthony, but it's uh, it's a work in progress. <laughs> I uh, I just want to mention too for listeners who are interested in looking at that um, report, the the global um, report. Um, that'll be in the show notes as well. Um, there's a lot of information to take in here, and I'm sure. But at this point, right now, people listening are probably asking, "What advice can you give to us?" Like, how, <laughs> it you know, in our day to day, um, how can we do better or how can we assist how can we work towards that same goal yeah oh, it's uh it's it's a critical one anthony and it's and it's a tough one because i guess from a from a professional and to an extent a personal approach it's always a tough one of we always focus on you know that it, i guess we've become very good at saying what do i as an individual consumer and i use that with uh, air quotation marks a little bit what can i do and obviously there is an impact and and you know decision making there can play a key role but for me i think for individuals it's probably a mix of just be very be a, be a conscious consumer in terms of how we how we as as a society in bendigo and wider australia and globally you know we, we are reasonably limited as as individuals in terms of if you wanted to overturn the apple card of capitalism tomorrow you, you as an individual probably couldn't do that alone so having a think about that is probably a bit tough but can, having being conscious of you know, what you buy and, and you know, necessarily why you're buying it is probably a really good start in terms of when you, similar to, I guess, when people start focusing on, you know, what have I actually eaten in this last week? There's a lot of, a lot of the time with the way um, we, we've set up our society for ease of, of buying products and getting things done. We're probably not always consciously aware of how much stuff we've actually used in a week. And so I think 
from on the one hand there's probably that and on the second one which is a bit of a cliche is probably i guess it engaging engaging in in the process in terms of be it the political process as a citizen and sort of actually demanding better bit of your your local council or or you know state and federal level through to i guess as as people who work in their own businesses so anthony you and the team a good example here you're starting to look at you know what can you as a business do to start tackling this in your own behavior because businesses are made up of, of individuals as well so it's probably also having a having a chat uh, in, or having a think and having a chat internally at wherever you work in terms of you know what's the impact of what my business is doing each day can we do something that's both environmentally smarter but oftentimes actually can lead to it's lower costs as well because it's about being smarter with how we're using uh, and consuming materials and products yeah it- I definitely encourage anyone as well to um, reach out to us if they'd like to see what we've implemented ourselves and um, both in office, that's been um, operational now for a while and it's working really well. Um, even with some, you know, there's always challenges when um, that we've encountered and we've been able to overcome that just by, I guess, reaching out to the um, the community, the local community in our specific little um, block. So that together we've, we've resolved those problems that we had. Um, and we're also developing um, our own waste management plan as well, which we really... Uh, really uh, more than happy to share all of that with with people um and any other businesses who are listening who want to try and in, in i suppose yeah create their own um again we'd be more than happy to assist and provide um what we've done to achieve that so uh, a part of that includes things like using a, a certain percentage of reclaimed or um, redirected materials in every one of our designs so that's just an example of like one thing that we can do and Anthony, if I can just quickly j- jump in there, I think the, my, my colleagues would be uh, probably a little bit um, peeved if I, if I didn't flag it, but I guess another, just as, a, as an actual tangible action, because I appreciate there's a lot of, we'll think about things and reflect on things, and that's sometimes a little bit abstract, but as a very much from a, both a business perspective, but even more so as an individual and household perspective, food waste is probably the number one lowest hanging fruit. Uh, I use an absolutely terrible analogy that it's, the lo- such a low-hanging fruit it's actually rotting on the ground it's that low in terms <laughs> of avoiding wasting food in the first place but if you know there's inevitable food scraps and the like if you don't have your own compost at home councils like bendigo have you know food waste um, composting program by the, the green that had been many of your listeners might know of or lots of councils are starting to adopt it and if they're not go and nag them um but yeah that's it's a it's a really easy win in terms of reducing emissions and making sure you know all the nutrients and water that went into growing those um growing that food manages to get put back onto land rather than going to landfill yeah that's a great example of something actionable that we can all do um i have to take this uh, opportunity having an expert sitting here to ask a few that might maybe they they're going to be a bit silly but bear with me here like a few questions um i know that so i'm as the listeners probably know by now uh that i'm from germany originally and i know there's some other discussions around the topic of the broader topic of i don't like the word but sustainability because you know like you said before you'd ask 10 people and everyone would say something different about what does that word mean but i know that there are a lot of discussions um back home when it comes to what is better there's a lot of people um that that argue about little things such as you know you shouldn't purchase a plastic bag when you're going shopping you should bring your own your own bag from home but if you then have like a fabric bag how much more water went into producing that fabric bag does that make this the plastic bag 
the at the end of the day the better option or you know when we're looking at maybe purchasing water if if you don't want to drink tap water this the plastic bottle you know we shouldn't use the plastic bottle we should use a glass bottle but transporting the gas bo- uh, the glass bottle will have way more emissions set free so it's just if you see where i'm going it's very confusing and there's a lot of arguments and i think a lot of people they get kind of they freeze because they don't know what to do and there's so much information out there people say you have to do this and like it's a very much black and white sometimes at least in the overall discussion that I think it can get quite overwhelming and people just stop doing doing that is there any kind of source of information something that you can direct listeners to that can solve that freeze in that moment of I don't know where to go I don't know what to believe anymore I think it, it's it is a very tough one Sandra in terms of there's there's no silver bullet in terms of there's there's only one right right way and and I guess that's where you get into dangerous discussions where it starts to feel like it's very much um ah it almost becomes like a political or a religious discussion in terms of it's because it's what I believe but I guess you you hinted at that a little bit in um in in your, your question there in terms of I guess the the biggest impact you have is the one that you don't make so in terms of you know, a plastic bag versus a, a canvas bag is, you know, I guess a, a hotly debated topic. Uh, any, any LCA listeners on there would be able to tell you it's, you know, depending on where the bag's from and if it's organic cotton, therefore it's maybe re- used fewer pesticides, but it's required more land to grow it on, etc. Um, it requires this many uses to be better than a plastic bag that's produced from virgin, uh, you know, from oil that's been drilled out of the ground, often called a virgin material or a primary material. Um, but I think last I read it, you know, it can vary between sort of 30 and 50 uses. So make sure you use that tote bag if you've got it, because uh, you need to <laughs> Uh, need to get some good use out of it but it is it's a really tricky one i mean the biggest one is if you can avoid doing something then embrace your inner sloth embrace your inner koala in terms of be lazy if you don't have to do that thing and you don't don't need that product then if you can get away with not not having it then go for it i mean it's probably the easiest rule of thumb Uh, otherwise you know the internet is a dangerous place but with some with, if, if you're really fretting over over products, you know, as, I guess as an individual consumer, there's a reasonable amount of information and, and I guess manufacturers and, and retailers are more, more frequently having to publish the impact of their products. So um, there are, you know, I guess there are internationally um, labels and marks and that are looking at what are the um, what are the impacts of different products and starting to compare them. That's especially big in in the EU. Um, so doing some googling there. Uh, I think the Blauer Engel uh, in Germany is a, the Blue Angel is a good example. Um, but yeah, I guess they're starting to report on that. In in the broader business uh, or building industry, there's a lot more pressure. It's probably more starting with the bigger manufacturers, and I think it's starting to trickle down probably the only good use of the trickle-down metaphor here that actually works. But um, in terms of environment product description, so I think I've bastardized that a little bit, but EPDs in terms of they describe what's the impact of this particular product in terms of how much water went into it, how much carbon was required to produce it, what's the recyclability of it. That's starting to be developed, and I, I feel I've, I've um, gone way off topic here with your uh, with your questions, Andrew. But I guess shifting to that that building sector, 
um, perspective, it's actually starting to be discussed also in Australia. I know the um, NABAS scheme has actually released for consultation what they've called their embodied emissions um, rating tool, um, which if you're in the industry, go and have a look and provide some commentary because it's, um, I guess, in that circular economy and materials use space, it's really exciting to, to see that coming into but to circle back on an individual perspective, if you can avoid if you can avoid having to have, make that decision in the first place, that's probably a good one because it can be complex. Because technically, a, a a plastic bag in landfill does absolutely nothing. It will sit there for the next thousand years, but it won't produce any emissions. Had lots of emissions to get it to that point, and you've only used it once. But that that I guess goes to show just how. How, how dangerous it is to sort of start fixating, I guess, back on uh, earlier in our conversation today in terms of it's not just about carbon. It oftentimes is because that's the biggest, one of the biggest challenges that we're facing right now, but it can get, can get tricky. So yeah, don't beat yourself up about it, I guess, is probably the other one. Yeah. Oh, well, sloth life is definitely advice I can get around. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's important to, um, and, and on that note too, maybe it is time to step back a little bit here and look it start to talk bigger picture um i uh i know we had ben o'brien who um on our uh podcast or an earlier podcast episode uh he was he's in the solar um solar side of the industry um his background is in sustainable systems engineer and very passionate about renewables and he sort of touched on that he did not he didn't in his studies he didn't see a clear way in which to use renewables to be able to provide power or enough energy to the large fabricators those big industrial type fabricators um have you found anything in that side of of your own research um or previous occupations that have yeah seen some way forward with that uh it's a it's a tough one and it, it does come down to for seriously high energy intensity industries it's I guess it's it's a probably a combination of those. You, you see some of the bigger players in Australia and some of the you know, big miners, they've got their power purchase agreements, which is literally, you know, it's a good thing in terms of it's directly funding uh, wind farms and solar farms um, or the companies that have set them up. Um, but it is more of an accounting thing in terms of it doesn't mean that every electron that you're consuming on site every kilowatt hour is coming from that plant. So I think from, from a heavy industry or intensive energy industry perspective the main one is just as as societies as countries or, or as as regions even just how quickly can we get a suitable amount of renewables up and running to cover that because the challenge is it's beyond a, a few small players um, it's far bigger than any any particular company can manage and yeah there's only so much solar you can generate from from your rooftop even if you bang in a boatload of storage and so Oftentimes, it's then yeah, it's effectively a matter of how do we how do we get it, you know, rooftop solar on everything and then intelligent control of that. So our so our industries locally they're, they're pulling this they might be pulling the same amount of electrons from the grid, or maybe they're producing using a little bit less because they've got a bit more efficient about it. But we know that they're all coming from from a renewable source. So the, the I guess the cliched answer there is just how do we how do we as swiftly as possible and intelligently as possible just switch our actual broader grid um, to to renewables yeah and i suppose now my mind turns towards uh what how we might be achieving that locally here um you've got my interest i i wasn't aware of the fact earlier when you mentioned that this was the first circular economy position that you'd seen advertised in australia so this might be quite uh 
groundbreaking for for people listening as well. And, and I don't know how much you can share and, and, and what I'm about to ask, but um, yeah, so please, yeah, um, I understand that, yeah, it's all a work in progress. So we're working towards our own uh, circular economy as our landfill um, closes here. Yep. What are we, do- how are we going, how- what is your thoughts around proposing how we facilitate that circular economy? Um, you know, the infrastructure that's required and-, and what happens with the parts that can't be recycled and how can we then turn that into a usable source? It's, uh, it is a tough one. Um, uh, I guess the, the one, one thing before I forget I would flag is what's been really exciting in, well, I guess, this what, three years now. I, I keep facetiously saying I've been back in, in Australia for one pandemic now, but that starts to get a little <laughs> bit macabre. Um, but the, the amount in uh, when I first started, I think they were literally starting at the same time as me was another colleague uh, in the central mid or central coast of New South Wales in a, in a similar role, but we were literally the only two in Australia. But now in the last three years, it's sort of really starting to take hold, not just in local government, but starting to look across private industry as well. That circular economy is starting, I guess, to, to embed itself. That might be a derivation of sustainability roles historically, but oftentimes it's starting to sit in addition to those roles. So it's, yeah, don't feel like I'm the only kid on the block anymore, which is nice. But I guess in terms of uh, your question, Anthony, on how does one replace a landfill? I think that is, um, yeah, I guess the billion dollar que- or trillion dollar question these days. And I, I'd love to have the, the one and only answer. There's, there's a lot of, um, yeah, I guess there are a lot of moving parts here. The, the quick and easy answer is you can't, not entirely, in terms of your, your two options at the moment for, or I guess, sorry, I should step back for a moment and sort of say the main challenge we have at the moment is, that, and that's potentially overly simplifying things, is how we treat end-of-life materials is, is the, the hints in the name. We call it waste, as in we think there's no more value in it, we need to get rid of it, it's waste. And I guess, ironically, waste is probably um, quite a good um, term in terms of that's what we're doing. We're wasting that material and, um, by, by treating it as waste. But rhetoric aside, I think at the moment we've become very good historically as waste was treated as a health and space problem in terms of I don't have enough space at my business or at my household and it's starting to potentially become a health concern. How do I get rid of this waste as cheaply, quickly and efficiently as possible? And in Australia, because we've had lots of, um, we've got lots of space, typically, um, we've become very good at building landfills. Uh, in the last um, few decades, we've become very good at making sure that they're very environmentally safe in terms of not le- leaching uh, toxic materials or um, liquids into the environment. So we're very good at that. And we've also started to extract uh, methane to generate electricity from the breakdown of organic uh, matter in those landfills. But what we're really bad at doing in Australia is reducing what's putting into those landfills. So if you consider we're still really struggling um, as a country in terms of shifting the amount of stuff we're we're, um, putting into landfill in terms of um, not just recycling, uh, but also just materials in general, because yes, as as a country, uh, we're one of the biggest consumers of stuff in the world, Um, not just in terms of because we drive long distances, but also just as households to day-to-day living. We always, uh, we're always buying new, not not everyone, but we're always um, seen, I guess, as the uh, engine of growth is needing to go up to Bunnings and get some more stuff to do your next project. But um, that's, I appreciate I haven't, haven't quite got to the, the, the nub of the question there, Anthony, but it's a mix of 
uh, I guess, here in Bendigo in terms of the council as being responsible for dealing with households and, and the, the waste materials they're putting in their bins every day. It's a mix of how do we how do we put infrastructure in place that's able to separate out as much of those materials as possible so we can get them to businesses either locally or oftentimes in Melbourne where there's a, a bigger uh, population density and more businesses that can actually use those materials as uh, I guess raw ingredients or feedstock for their for their business process, and you know historically everyone would be really familiar with uh, companies like Vizzy, big paper producer. They're really good at taking back paper from and cardboard from these processes and doing something with it. And metal, we've been doing that for a long time because metal is quite expensive and it's really easy to melt down and um, put into a new form. Uh, sure there's uh, some listeners that are like oh it's actually really uh, complicated and it can absolutely be but you know um, bear with me here <laughs> however we then get into the um, really tough areas of, of other materials and so i guess for, for bendigo it's been quite progressive in in victorian councils in terms of in 2015 everyone grown through the adaptation of uh, a food and garden organics waste collection oh it's another bin i have to separate out some more and yet eight years later it's uh, second nature and everyone actually likes to humble brag to to all their uh you know, family members who are in in councils where oh half my bin is full of stinking food waste and that uh, in in summer is really smelly and we're, we're wasting we're putting into landfill so i guess it's a mix of engaging with companies who can, I guess, do things with the materials that we're collecting. Um, there's a, an element and it's quite, it's a very tough one, both from a, a sustainability perspective, but also just, I guess, from an ethical perspective of not wanting to um, facilitate further consumption is effectively, if you're not putting it in a hole and you still end up having, unless we do some massive um, political engineering in terms of the creation of materials in the first place that are not, fit for recycling as in they're very they're a mix of materials or it's very hard to break them down uh your only other alternative is what a lot of countries such as uh, sandler's uh, home country of germany have done is uh, energy from waste or might, people might have heard it called waste to energy it's very controversial in terms of on what they call the waste hierarchy where you know avoidance and reuse is right up the top recycling is sort of in the middle and landfill is right at the bottom one step above Landfilling is uh, often what's called energy recovery or just recovery. And what that means is, well, if you're going to put it in a hole anyway, we might as well uh, combust, not necessarily combust it, but as in treat it thermally. So for most listeners, they might be saying, yeah, that's incineration. That's one of the options. That's one of the technologies, but it's effectively turning, you know, your plastic cup or, or any of your materials that would be going into landfill into energy first. So getting some electricity and heat out of it. Now, the challenge there is, in many cases, especially with the Australian electricity grids not being fully renewable yet, oftentimes that process is lower carbon you know, in terms of the electricity produced but compared to, say, a coal power station. Uh, however, the challenge there is, and what Europe's um, trying to move away from, is typically that only tends to make sense if you build very big plants. So they effectively act as power plants rather than as... Uh, I guess, waste treatment facilities. And so you end up trying to sh having to ship in or, or truck in waste from, from different regions to, to feed the beast as it will. And I guess what ben Bendigo is currently exploring at the moment, we haven't uh, haven't signed off on anything yet, uh, but we're, we're in, in discussion with a local company is how do we make sure that given that we won't have a landfill here, there are a lot of emissions from having to cart waste up the road if, if we 
because there's always going to be a fraction, at least in the short to medium term, that we can't re recover and do something with. Um, what do we do with that? Well, either we have to truck it up the road because we don't have a hole in the ground here to put it in, or if we do decide as a community to go ahead with an energy from waste facility, how do we make sure that A, it's future-proofed, so it could theoretically uh, actually properly recycle things in future, so not just putting general waste in, but being able to put specific materials in and get things like biochar out the back, which is quite, quite good for uh, agriculture, through to, uh, I guess as the last point, how do we make sure it's no bigger than it has to be? Because that's the, that's the other challenge is if you create something that, I guess, meets what's typically a really good return on investment, that's oftentimes based around making it as big as you can. And that locks in that consumption because it's, right, we actually don't want people to avoid producing that waste because we need it as a food stock. And you have countries like Denmark that are having to actually import other countries' waste at the moment to keep um, some of their facilities running. Some of your listeners might have seen the swanky uh, energy from waste facility in Copenhagen that has the, uh, the ski run on top of it. And that's, I guess, a good example there. They're looking at how do we extend the life of that facility and maybe shift it to, to biomass instead of waste, but they're still struggling with that at the moment. So if you can avoid it in the first place or make sure it's no bigger than it has to be, that's sort of what we're looking at at the moment. So it's still a work in progress, Anthony. Yeah, and if anyone also interested, I think it was Bjark Engels' um, big architecture firm that did that design for that because it was, uh, what is a ski, uh, yeah, ski slope doing on top of a power-producing facility that can't be healthy, can it? But anyway, it um, seems to work. So <laughs> uh, I um, I suppose, I, I don't I don't know what people's thoughts are at the moment, but um, I don't want to end this on a on a doom and gloom note or anything by by any means. And it's more about like what is the good news story, and I don't mean just locally, but can we talk about um, those things that have really caught your interest that you are just absolutely impressed by um, that are happening, well maybe locally, but also internationally as well. Oh, there's uh, there's a whole host, and uh, I think before before our conversation today, Sandra, Anthony, you, you also flagged, you know, where are potential places to go and, and, and have a look at this and I guess be uplifted in terms of where can I actually go and find out a bit more information. And I guess on that point, and I'll get to one of my personal favourites in a sec, and the likes of you have the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, which is a big um, effectively think tank, if you will, private, private, I believe the charity status based in the UK, that's almost the organisation when it comes to uh, evangelising about circular economy. They have a whole host of great examples and, and materials from education through this case studies through actual tips and tricks to how to bring circular economy into your, into your business. Um, the... I guess the, the latest trend uh, is also uh, an organization called Donut Economics, which also provides a really interesting way of how do I, as, you know, as a member of a, a local council or a business or, or, or a, a state even, how do, we, how do we use resources better and how should we actually be doing that to, I guess, better um, treat everyone from a social perspective, but also live within those planetary boundaries and reduce those environmental effects. So that, that's another one. And otherwise, if you're if someone's a fan of Googling or Binging or Ecosying or whatever, your search engine of choice, uh, there's a lot of case studies if you, if you look for European Union or European Commission and circular economy case studies. There's a lot of exciting stuff there. And that's probably glossing over 
any friends and organizations that we have doing some great stuff in Japan and China and Southeast Asia. So there's a, there's a fair bit of stuff that's on there that provides some exciting stuff for me. And it's probably, probably a reflection of I still have my heart part of my heart or at least one foot uh, in the in the energy sector as, a, as an energy nerd is probably a company called Reblade in Scotland. So it also probably comes with the territory of having worked there previously and it was um, part of work I was trying to do there um, before I left. But a big challenge with the wind industry is 20% of the weight of a, of a wind farm um, is not recyclable. So the rest is, you know, you've got your, your metal tur- big turbine um, tower that sits uh, sits there and a lot of the, a lot of the parts in the actual, there's a generator in there that actually generates the electricity when the turbine turns, but the, the turbine blades themselves are not uh, currently recyclable. They're effectively, just think of them as giant boats, if you will. It's a balsa, balsa wood frame and then you've got fiberglass. They do it all by hand. It's, you'd be surprised at how archaic it is in terms of, creating a 200 meter long blade is, is very technical, but is then also very labor intensive. And it's very hard to recycle. And if you think, all right, it's, it's you know, it's fiberglass and, and balsa wood. It doesn't have a lot of value at end of life. Uh, you don't want to be lugging a 200 meter long turbine blade back into town again. It's very costly to move those things in, in one piece. And you have whole teams of engineers actually figuring out, oh, I need to move this into remote Australia or I need to move this into the Rocky Mountains in Canada. How do I even get this there? You don't want to be doing that at the end of life. And what this Reblade, as well as quite a few initiatives happening up uh, up in Northern Europe, because it's quite windy up there and they like their wind uh, power, is they're actually trying to convert um, these wind turbine blades into usable uh, usable products and equipment um, from seats through to highway um, noise insulation through to structural structural products and they sort of also work with other companies such as um, renewable parts limited who are actually looking at how do we actually refurbish wind turbines in the first place when they're finished because usually they're not completely knackered at the end of life it's just that they're old technology and so on the same site i can build a wind turbine that's twice as big and generate three times as much power from it and so i'm using the land more efficiently but i'm getting rid of the the wind turbine that could still be used somewhere else so yeah i guess there's a lot of lot of interest and a lot of innovation in that space because the green, industry, the green energy industry isn't as green as it should be. It's still an industry like anyone else, and it's only recently that we've started looking at what the impact of that industry is because up until now, we've just been focused on how do we reduce the cost of this so we can actually get rid of fossil fuels in the first place. We've, sort of, we've effectively got there. It's cheaper effectively almost everywhere in the world now to build new uh, renewables than it is new gas or coal-fired power stations, but we're now turning our attention to you know, what do we actually do with all of that stuff when it's uh, when it's ready to be pulled down. Yeah, gee, wow, what an insight. That was fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Um, uh, I might just further add to that and maybe you could share what that looks like for solar as well because I know that um, you know that's more common here in Australia for most people to, for whatever their reasoning is, have solar panels on their home. Um, what does, how does that look uh, at the moment as far as the, the recycling of solar panels? Because I imagine they're probably getting to an age now where a lot probably are either antiquated technology and need to they want to replace or to get better performance, or they may just be now yeah at the end of their life as far as yeah functioning. It's a it's a tricky one in terms of I guess because of the the nature of solar, we do have some big solar farms, but it's a lot more. 
I guess, distributed, if you will, in terms of, you know, if you imagine every household might have 10 or 15 solar panels on their roof, and that's owned by each individual household. So it's, you know, it's very, it's a little bit less controllable in terms of you're not, you know, uh, everyone's not pulling the solar panels off their roof at the same time. And when you combine that with, it's quite a compact, uh, a complex little package that uh, solar panel is in terms of all the different materials. You've got an aluminium frame, and you've got your silicon in there and some rare earth metals and the like. We do have a, a couple of companies that have started to set up and apologies if I'm missing any. I know there's uh, Lotus Energy and F, uh, SRC um, are two that are doing it as well as I believe there's a long-standing solar recycler in South Australia. And as, as always, they seem to be ahead of the curve um, when it comes to renewables in Australia. Um, but it's it's a tough one. They tend to It tends to be more about getting those panels in it's trying to automate it because in Australia it's quite expensive to do stuff with with manual labour, and so it's almost trying to break it, automate the deconstruction and breakdown of, of that panel, so you then get it into its different constituent parts. So you've got silicon that can be pulverised back into sand or silica sand to to be reused again. You can get your aluminium off to an aluminium smelter to be recycled and I guess trying to break it down and I think technologies out there have um, got to the point where it's being able to recycle almost all of the all of the panel it's just a matter of trying to get the supply chains in place so I know, you know uh, city of greater Bendigo and other councils have sort of got drop-off points where if your panels are done as a resident we haven't got there yet with commercial installers then you can drop them off and we'll we'll, um, we'll pass them on to some of these companies but it's still early days i think it's as you say anthony there's there is a lot um you know 20 plus percent of households have got solar panels on there it's probably the next five years that we're really going to start to see those you know early 2000s feed-in tariff sets of small solar panels that went up um that'll start to to come down but it's I think the one trick we haven't got to, and that's probably because of the fact that technology changes so quickly that every five years solar panels that just get so much more efficient is where no one or few people um, are having that discussion on is there a means to refurb a lot of those panels and they might not be as efficient anymore and they might not put out as much power, but if we have some spare space somewhere, we've effectively got free panels that we could um, put up and, and get generating electricity. So. For any uh, any innovators and entrepreneurs out there that want to look at a, a new business model, I'd uh, highly recommend looking at getting into refurbishing solar panels. I um I do want to take this opportunity to to um, just mention um, more of a grassroots startup as well that's looking to how to navigate this, and that's um yeah just Robbie and the team at Revival Projects. Um, they've just launched an app, so anyone who is currently designing or building a home, please do go find that app at. Um, your app store, um, whichever device you've got, and you'll be able to find products that can be repurposed from builds at the moment to your own home and just completely remove um, yeah, that uh, problem of what to do with that when it becomes waste at the end of a build, it then gets repurposed into a new design, a new build. So yeah, I'll, uh, I'll drop that one in there as well. The one question left to ask, um, and you just mentioned the Revival app that's kind of focusing on repurposing, especially um, building waste. Um, and you've mentioned before, Scott, that there's different ways to kind of um, to get businesses involved, to get people involved is, you know, providing infrastructure and knowledge and stuff. But and one way is also to change uh, yeah, legislation or, you know, uh, building codes. And yeah, maybe that's one way that we could push a little bit of um, a little bit of that initiative forward. So if if you were given the chance to 
to change anything in the existing building code um, with the yeah with looking at how waste is managed on building sites what would you or anything really it doesn't have to be waste related I'm just I'm, I'm just assuming that you would want it to be waste related what would you change in the building code if you had the chance oh this might uh, might um flush me out as not being uh, anywhere near as familiar with the building codes as yourselves or, or your listeners, but I'm almost two, I think. You know, I'll cheekily take two because I'm very selfish here. Um, one, probably more on that waste side of things, is mandated minimum uh, recycling um, percentages for, for builds in terms of if you talk to any even moderately innovative and, and environmentally minded builder they'll tell you i can easily get 90 percent um, recovery off my site by weight in terms of just a, just a few different skip bins and just making sure that my my subcontractors are towing the line and you know it just requires a bit of bit more pre-planning but as in easily achievable and that would make a massive dent in our construction and, and demolition waste i think more broadly probably in the direction that the uh, embodied carbon rating tool that's out for consultation by NABAS at the moment is heading, but almost having to similar, I think it should also be for, for energy consumption of, of houses, but a minimum rating on all new builds and all effectively all buildings because renters who are looking for a place should be able to do see this is what is the uh, operational cost of my household in terms of kilowatt hours per meter squared as well as what is, and also water usage would be a good one, but also I think to, to, as a stamp for this is the build quality is what's the, what are the emissions, the embodied emissions from this build? Because ideally each building is going to have a um, building in a, you know, a materials inventory, uh, so a building materials inventory um, so that at end of life people know exactly what's in, in, in that building. So if you are um, going to remove the building rather than repurpose it, you can deconstruct it and you know exactly what's in it so you can send it to the right places or you can reuse it if you want so i think i've gone well beyond my one or two asks there sandra but um i think those would be some really great things to see especially on the being able to compare apples with apples i still it still boggles my mind having come back to australia three years ago that in 2023 i can't tell you whether my whether my house or the house that my neighbor's in it performs better energy-wise without um, trying to see their energy bill. And even that doesn't tell me much because they could love their television or maybe I love running three refrigerators. I only have one, everybody, but, you know, just... just <laughs> um, yeah, so being able to compare apples with apples and make some smart choices, let alone keeping, I guess, um, designers both um, the feet to the fire, like yourself, Anthony, in terms of how much uh, how many emissions went into building it as well as how operationally efficient it is, I think would start to get some really creative designs, let alone starting to manage our, our waste better on site. So it's no longer waste, but a, a material to go for recycling. Yeah. So that it's a waste to waste them. I love that. <laughs> yeah. The rhetoric that you use there. Fascinating. Well, I love that we're kind of ending on, on a positive note and with a lot of um, exciting wishes for the future. But um, I always like to think that we are putting these wishes out into the universe and you know but they're not completely made up like well there's a lot of people in the background that are working on solutions for this um and yeah bringing bringing their knowledge to the plate and, and trying to better the way we're building houses the way we're using and reusing and recycling and even just sharing knowledge and yeah inspiring other people to do that you know one little thing that that is easy for them to do so 
yeah, it's a it's a big conversation to have. Um, thank you so much for yeah for sharing your insights and your knowledge and giving us some ideas about what um, the, on a city level um, Bendigo is doing, but also what on an individual or company level people can do to to do their part. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you both for having me. Thank you for listening to the Outlier Podcast. You can find helpful links and contact information regarding this episode in our show notes and on our website, outlierstudio.com.au forward slash podcast. If you like our show, please leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcast and make sure you subscribe to never miss a new episode. If you have further questions for us or want to share some additional feedback, please feel free to send us a message on Instagram or Facebook. Until next time on the Outlier Podcast.